0: Welcome to Education Beat. I'm Anne Vasquez, CEO of EdSource. Happy New Year. Here at EdSource, we have traditions for ending the old year and beginning the new one. Every December, we publish lists of our best of the year stories and podcast episodes. And every January, we turn to our resident fortune teller, John Fensterwald, for his predictions of what will transpire in California education in the coming year. So settle in and listen to what's in store for 2024 on this week's Education Beat with host Zadie Stavely. When John Finsterwald first sat down this year to write his annual New Year's predictions column, he was thinking of starting it with these words. If you thought 2023 was a downer, just wait for 2024. But then John's wife stepped in.
1: She said, uh, well, that's pretty gloomy. Who wants to who wants to read a column that is that is so depressing? Can't you come up with something that uh, that is positive?
0: So John started his column with a positive prediction about arts education.
1: I said, well, wait a minute, we got lots of excitement about the arts. We had Proposition 28 pass, that's a billion dollars for the arts, which has been neglected over the years as we focused on other things. Karen D'Souza has written a number of columns about exciting artists who will be in the schools and schools that are expanding their programs and hiring staff, teachers. There was a profile of Manteca Unified, and I read it, and I said, well, Manteca has supplied all of its students with instruments, those who want them, and they also have a number of graduates in, from Manteca Unified who are actually coming back and want to teach in the schools. And I thought, well, that's good news.
0: This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stably. This week, predictions for 2024. If you haven't ever read one of John Fensterwald's columns with New Year predictions for what might happen in California education, I highly recommend you do. They're interesting, they're funny, and you get a good sense of what's going on in education, no matter whether his predictions are right or wrong. So, of course, I asked him to join me on this week's episode.
1: Hi, John. Hey, Sadie. Happy New Year. Who do think, anyway? Let's start with
0: the good news, John. You give each prediction you make a number, one to five of how probable you think it is that it will happen. And you call those fensters. It's a play on your own last name. Can you just tell me how many fensters you gave, betting that arts will flourish in some districts? Districts like in Manteca?
1: Yeah, that's a four fenster, four out of five. I don't I don't give them away. <laughs>
0: it could be good news all over all over the state, right, John?
1: Oh yes. But I did offer a caution. <laughs> and that gets uh, gets right into the budget. You're supposed to supplement the existing arts programs that you have, not replace it or supplant in the language of the law. And so I think that uh, some districts will be so desperate looking for money that I think they'll say, well, you know, you're lucky that we're protecting what we have. So, you know, my prediction is there'll be complaints on this and and I got a, a letter, an email to me after that that said, hey, Los Angeles Unified's already doing that. I don't know. I can't verify it, but I think that it may be happening. Districts know they're in for a difficult year and they're not just waiting for the governor's budget. You know, they read the legislative analysts. They see what's happening. And so smart districts are budgeting right now.
0: So speaking of this issue about the fiscal cliff, tell us what's going on here. Uh, You know, what what can we expect in 2024?
1: Right. Well, there are a number of factors. These are not a surprise. We know that the federal money for COVID, uh, lots of billions of dollars for California, upwards of 10 plus, they will expire in September. And so all that money must be spent. Districts did a lot of things with the money and um, included among them was hiring counselors and hiring aides for classes and classrooms and some teachers. And so then they face a choice. When the money runs out for that, what do they do? And so that's that's one factor. The other another factor is that there's declining enrollment, which we know about. And the data projections are for that to continue about 20% over the next decade statewide will decline, something higher than three out of four districts are losing enrollment. And so that's a factor because your funding is based on, when, on actually attendance, but attendance is tied with two enrollments, obviously. And then the third um, factor is that there's going to be a drop in Proposition 98 funding. Proposition 98 is the formula created about uh, 30 40 years ago, which ties community college and K-12 funding or TK-12 funding to how much revenue comes into the state. Approximately 40% of that goes to schools and community colleges, but it's very dependent on revenues and revenues going up and down in California. The legislative analyst came out with a report last month that said, this is a really serious drop and final factor is the basic general funding for schools. We had an 8% increase this year, 13% above the minimum that was required the year before that. And inflation this year is measured by a federal index, not looking around and what I pay in gas and what I pay in rent, but the federal uh, measure is about 1%. And that's what districts are really counting for raises and they're counting for operating expenses. They will face increases in electricity. We all know what we're getting in PG&E. So 1% is uh, going to be create problems. It's a deficit for, for districts. And so all these factors are going to happen this year. And it's, you know, how is the state going to make up the money or how are districts going to deal with the cuts are the two questions we will face.
0: And John, what are you predicting for how the, this fiscal cliff will, will affect, you know, teachers and, and, and school
1: districts? March 15th is the date when all teachers need to be noticed. It used to be just teachers. Now it's actually hourly workers as well. They need to be told, you may not have a job next year, so this is a first notice to you. And it's usually more, way more than, in fact, Get laid off because we have retirements and the like. We have people just leaving the profession. So, but it's very it's very disorienting for any teacher to get a pink slip, a notice that you may not be needed. And usually, it's the it's by contract by seniority. It's the newest teachers who get laid off first. And I think we're really conscious now of equity and that many of these new teachers are teachers of color we've been trying to get into the district. Will they be the first to be laid off? They may be math and STEM teachers that we have in short supply, special education teachers, bilingual teachers. So there's an equity and a a number of reasons other than simply for last in first out. And we're going to have to go through that. The other thing, there are plenty of schools in districts that have really don't have enough Students in that school, there really may be, I I saw a figure today, a huge number of of schools in in Los Angeles Unified, for example, have lost 20% of their enrollment. And so there's a cost to keeping schools open when you're under-enrolled in the school. That's one way you can save money is to merge. And as we've seen in Oakland, we've seen in San Francisco, and uh, particularly Oakland, and LA too, it's sort of an, a non starter up till now. And so that's always uncomfortable discussions. And the problem is, schools wait until the end of the year when, in fact, if you're going to do that, you need to get neighbors and parents involved from the start. And if you don't, that's where the problems are. So you got to make that this have these discussions early in. So I imagine some districts won't be doing the, having those discussions in the way they should. And the other issue, a number of districts have signed contracts, uh, assuming that there would be increases in the local control funding formula, that won't be happening this year and it's a question of whether or not they will rise at the level that they have in the past for several years. And if you've got contracts with basically five, six, seven percent raises in the future in two years, that creates a problem. That you have to deal with somehow. You can only eat your reserves so far. And so that gets into the issue of the number of districts that will be labeled as in financial distress. And we haven't had large numbers of those in the past several years because there's been so much money. And so I think we'll begin seeing that list rise substantially starting next spring.
0: So, let's talk about the election, John. Um, you say in your column that the odds are five fensters. That's 5 out of 5 that there's going to be a big fight over library books and the backlash against protections for transgender students in districts. Tell us about what's on, you know, what's on the ballot and and what you think will happen.
1: The same organization Protect Kids California is trying to put three initiatives on the ballot. I said five fensters that there'll be it will be a high-profile issue. And we all agree that that's a pretty safe bet. But uh, you have to collect 550,000 signatures to get those initiatives on the ballot. And if you don't have money to do it, it's really hard. I'm assuming that there are conservative networks, evangelical churches. There's a whole network that you can do that. But I think my prediction was it was going to be hard, two fensters, to get it on the ballot. And... I actually said the only one that I thought had a pretty good chance of passing is the one that would say for parental notification, if your child shows signs of changing genders or even just an interest in whether you want a a different pronoun, because teachers will be on notice that they have to tell the principal or notify the parents within three days that that something, some kind of. Potential gender transitioning is happening with your student. For this, I go back to Proposition 8 back in 2008. We all think we're living in a blue state of California and we're all, you know, everyone's progressive. But in fact, uh, that initiative in 2008 banned gay marriage. And so I think that was a surprise. It was fifty two forty eight. I think that on a lot of social issues, people are more conservative than they acknowledge once they get into to the polls. So I think there's a four-fenster chance that if it gets to on the ballot that in fact it might pass. I think parents are I mean I think parents have a tendency to say, "Well, I'm I'm with that child if it's someone else's child, but I want to know what's going on with my child in my school and I don't want to be the last one to know." So I think that's a that's an anxiety and there are a lot of people playing off that anxiety too. So we'll see.
0: John there are other, there are another two yes propositions coming from the same group um, and, you know, one of them would prohibit students from participating in sports if right. they were assigned a male at birth and, and they identify as female, they wouldn't be able to play on on girls' sports teams. That's right. And then there's another one that actually bans gender-affirming medical care for yes. um, for minors under 18, even if parents consent and or doctors recommend the treatment. And you, but you don't think that those would pass.
1: I don't think so. I think those are more severe. And I think that, that people will respect parental choice on this. Again, the funny thing is many of the, those who are for it are for parental choice, school choice, parental choice. Except if we make a value judgment that it's bad for your kid, then we're going to try and pass this initiative. And I don't think that it would pass, but, uh, Again, I thought the other one with regard to notification of parents has a better chance than these do. And California has been a sanctuary for, for trans kids to come to, uh, to the state. And, and then again, when you say, even if your parents decide it's appropriate for, for, my, for my kid, uh, they're saying, no, it's not. Or even if a doctor says and gives a consent or, uh, or agrees that this care is needed, then this would rule that out and i think that's i think parents recognize that that's that's crossing a line.
0: So John there's actually another ballot initiative that people are trying to get on the ballot and that one's for school choice. Can you just explain to, to us what this initiative would do and and why you don't think it has much of a chance of getting on the ballot?
1: Yeah, it's similar to vouchers although it's called an education savings account and what it what it would do would be to give parents roughly what they would get from per student proposition 98 funding, same as, as other kids would get to go to a district school or charter school. Uh, And this would say, you can take this and go to a private school and it would be $14,000 the first year and increase yearly after that. And I mean, it has a lot of attraction. First of all, any, any family that has kids in private school would all of a sudden get free tuition or close to it, some or more, but and then second of all, you could save the money. And if you don't, say you want to do a hybrid homeschool situation, it doesn't cost 14000 you can apply this money towards uh, higher education in the future. I don't think it would win anyway, uh, but the challenge is it would be, require a constitutional amendment because it would also mean changing the Constitution to allow students to go to religious private schools. So we're talking about 875,000 signatures. That's a lot. And particularly if you don't have a lot of uh, money to do paid collectors, signature gatherers, that's that's high. So I don't think that that's going to make the ballot. But I do think the last time we voted on vouchers was more than two decades ago, and it only got 30%. The, my fensters said that it would lose, but it would get 40% because I think we're in a different period coming out of the pandemic. And nationally, there's been a movement for school choice. Some other day we can talk about whether or not not this actually leads to improved education for kids. There is a movement to do that for a number of reasons, COVID and social values and all that, but I don't think it would pass. I really don't.
0: So John, let's pivot a little bit towards what's going on in the classroom. We did a whole series about early literacy last year and the year before and, you know, how, how kids are or are not learning how to read and write. What are you predicting in your column about early literacy?
1: Right. I'm glad we're turning to learning, Zadie, because, you know, that's the most important thing we should be talking about. It's harder to measure. You know, it's easy to do a, a predictions column that gets into the politics of education, the budget and things that we will be voting on. But this is is so critical on early literacy. There's nothing more important than to teach kids to read, and we haven't done a very good job of that. There is not a comprehensive state policy uh, because of a number of reasons, local control, and that gets into the issue of mandates. Other states have comprehensive policies, and it puts the, the pieces together. California has gone about this a little bit helter-skelter. We now have very good standards for teaching teachers who are learning how to to be in a classroom, help to teach reading in a, in the science of reading. That's a start. We've we've funded some training for trainers in the poorest schools. That's that's important. We haven't brought these pieces together. We have dots. We've never connected it with lines. And that's what a comprehensive policy would do. And once you have that, then there's an urgency you gain from that that's been lacking in California with this reflexive uh, view of local control. We don't even measure what happens in the first and second grade. So it's not even, we don't even have the data to make those decisions. So w- I think there will be a bill this year. I know there'll be a bill because um, it's called the California Early Literacy Coalition. It involves decoding dyslexia, families and schools, and the nonprofit Edvoice, which is coming back after a number of years. There will be a bill, and I think it will be taken seriously because Nationwide, we're seeing what other states are doing. I think the bill will call for um, mandatory training of teachers in the science of reading, and also requiring that textbooks that districts get when they buy new textbooks be aligned. It's still the choice of which ones, but it will be aligned with with what evidence says is good. And I think that it will sort of lay out the kinds of training that teachers should get. We know that it's just not simple enough to say you need uh, training, but you don't, this will say you need training in a course called letters, which is very explicit in fundamental skills as opposed to Lucy Calkins and units of study, which has very poor treatment of phonics and fundamental skills. I think this is where the advocates would like the state to go. Uh, again, tying it into testing for dyslexia, which the state is making an effort in fact, will require that in a couple of years. But to bringing all these pieces together, it will be very hard to pass, I think, at least next year, because there won't be much money. So it may take another administration. That's the Fenster prediction, is that uh, Governor Newsom and Superintendent Tony Thurman haven't shown that urgency to create a You know, that this is the most important and my administration will make it the most important priority uh, as opposed to other things we've done in education. It may that may take a big campaign for governor stressing it as an issue before we actually get that.
0: You're betting five fencers that there will be a bill, but only two fencers that it would pass.
1: Right. Not only not only that there will be a bill, but this will be a much discussed, much debated with more attention that we've given to it as a state uh, in terms of options than we've done before. But I do think it's a two fenster uh, likelihood next year. But then again, when you think, you know, the local control funding formula, which had Governor Brown fully behind it, it took a couple years to pass.
0: John, how did you do with your bets on twenty twenty three?
1: Do you have to bring that up, ZD? Um Actually, I didn't. I didn't do. I didn't do too badly. Uh, I actually predicted that the math framework, which was fighting over for three years, would pass pretty much as was as occurred because you could see the compromise coming. I said that um, there would be tutoring. I, that was my big bet, and I said the governor would use the um, college core, which is a interesting. Uh, sort of Peace Corps in a California way for college students to earn money as they worked in the community. I said, boy, this is a great opportunity to turn this into a massive tutoring effort, which in fact is what Tennessee has done, but they ignored me. So I sort of threw that one in there, knowing it would lose. Nonetheless, it was my way of using my column to bring up an interesting, uh, interesting discussion. I did come close on strikes for teachers I said that there would be more than in fact happened, but um, we had strikes in LA and uh, we had strike in Oakland, nearly had strikes in Fresno and and San Francisco. I don't think you're gonna be seeing that this year. And that's one of the challenges when you have all of a sudden a lot of money, uh, that's more likely than you'll get strikes than in fact when there's no money, which is what we're heading into. So I did okay and I hope people did their scorecards and did better than I did.
0: Thank you so much, John, for talking with me and happy new year. Thank you. Happy new year. And uh, this time
1: next year, we'll see how we did. Thank you. Sounds good, John.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools, a production of EdSource. You can find John's predictions at edsource.org. You can also find a list of our top podcast episodes from last year there. Our producer this week is Jennifer Molina. Special thanks to our guest, John Fensterwald. Our CEO is Anne Vasquez. Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the Stewart Foundation. I'm Zadie Stabley. Join us next week and subscribe so you won't miss an episode.